Chapter 11 of The Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Neapolitan Letters. In the winter of 1850, Mr. Gladstone went with his family to Naples. One of his children was ill, and the doctors had advised that a southern climate should be tried, and so it was determined that a few months should be spent in Naples. Mr. Gladstone, no doubt, went with no other idea than to watch over the recovery of his child and to give himself a rest from political labor. Doubtless, he was thinking much, too, about quiet and happy hours to be spent in the studies and with the books which he was growing to love more and more. But if he thought he was settling down for rest of any kind, he was doomed to be grievously disappointed. Yet I do not believe that in his heart he allowed himself to be disappointed, because his earnest nature sprang at every opportunity for doing any good to his fellow man, and he never could resist the temptation to right some wrong. Rest elsewhere was assumed as his motto by one of the great Netherlands statesmen who joined in resisting the domination of Philip II and the Duke of Alva. Mr. Gladstone, too, might well have taken the words rest elsewhere as the motto of his busy life. He soon found that he had other work cut out for him in Naples besides pensive loiterings among the ruins of Pompeii or contemplating the outlines of Capri across the Blue Bay or climbing the sides of Vesuvius. The kingdom of Naples was then one of the worst-governed countries in Europe. The dominion of the Spanish Bourbon was terribly oppressive, and rebellion after rebellion was constantly going on. I do not intend to enter into all the questions involved in the relative merits of Italian governments. In all European countries then, including Great Britain, the common idea was to stamp out rebellion as you might stamp out the rinderpest. Let us admit frankly that the idea had not come up in continental states at that time, an idea which Mr. Gladstone afterwards powerfully impressed upon England, that the existence of rebellion was, first of all, a reason for inquiring into the existence of genuine grievance. No doubt Mr. Gladstone knew that political prisoners were treated harshly in Austria, in Prussia, and in Russia, and that they had been treated harshly in England and in Ireland. But so far as I can judge, the government of King Ferdinand of Naples was more harsh, on the whole, in its dealings with such enemies than any other European state at the time. In any case, Mr. Gladstone's was peculiarly a temperament to be impressed by the propinquity of events, and here he found that in Naples, where he settled for rest, there was going on a system of medieval cruelty in the treatment of prisoners of state. A large number of Neapolitan public men who formed the opposition had been either banished or imprisoned. Many thousands were lying in the jails on charges of political disaffection and were there subjected to gross severity and insult. 
At once there was an end of Mr. Gladstone's holiday. He was determined to study the question for himself and from the life. He obtained the means of visiting the prisons. He saw the men in their chains. He learned who they were and what they had done. He found that some of them were men of the highest personal character and honor, patriots, statesmen, valuable citizens to any state which showed itself worthy of their cooperation. As the result of his inquiries and his observation, Mr. Gladstone, on the 2nd of April, 1851, addressed nominally to his friend Lord Aberdeen, afterwards Prime Minister of England, but really to the whole civilized and Christian world, a letter in which he described and denounced the abominations which he had seen, and indeed the whole system of King Ferdinand's government. He followed this up with other letters, and the effect which they produced was an almost unparalleled sensation throughout England and throughout Europe. He explained in his first letter that he had not gone to Naples with any idea of criticizing the system of government there, or of looking out for grievances in its administration, or of propagating any political creeds or theories whatever. He said that the work which he had undertaken had been forced upon him by his conscience, and that even after he had returned to his own country, he felt only stronger and more imperative the duty of proclaiming his views. He very judiciously declined to go into any questions as to the validity of the title possessed by the existing government of the two Sicilies. Whether the title was one of law or of force was not a matter for his consideration. He laid down three propositions. First, that the present practices of the government of Naples, in reference to real or supposed political offenders, was an outrage upon religion upon civilization, upon humanity, and upon decency. Secondly, that these practices are certainly, and even rapidly, doing the work of republicanism in that country, a political creed which has little natural root in the character of the people. Thirdly, that as a member of the conservative party in one of the great family of European nations, I am compelled to remember that that party stands in virtual and real, though perhaps unconscious, alliance with all the established governments of Europe as such, and that according to the measure of its influence, they suffer more or less of moral detriment from its reverses and derive strength and encouragement from its successes. He explained that he had deliberately abstained from making any British agencies or influences, diplomatic or political, responsible for his utterances. The charge he made against the government of Naples was not one of corruption among some of its officials, of occasional harshness or even cruelty to its prisoners, or the imprisonment of men on charges not, in his opinion, sufficiently proved. Charges such as these might in disturbed and trying times be made with occasional justice against any state in Europe. Mr. Gladstone's indictment against the government of the two Sicilies was that it deliberately violated its own constitution and trampled on its own laws. 
This point ought to be strongly impressed on the mind of the reader. Mr. Gladstone did not merely accuse the Neapolitan government of making the full cruel use of laws which were in themselves cruel. His charge against the Neapolitan government was that it broke its own code of laws for the purpose of inflicting on its enemies a severity of punishment which the laws did not allow, and that it obtained convictions by methods which the laws themselves condemned. One striking passage from Mr. Gladstone's letter has indeed been quoted often and often before, but I cannot refrain from quoting it once again. It is such violation of human and written law as this, carried on for the purpose of violating every other law, unwritten and eternal, human and divine, it is the wholesale persecution of virtue, when united with intelligence, operating upon such a scale, that entire classes may with truth be said to be its object, so that government is in bitter and cruel, as well as utterly illegal hostility to whatever in the nation really lives and moves, and forms the mainspring of practical progress and improvement. It is the awful profanation of public religion by its notorious alliance in the governing powers with the violation of every moral rule under the stimulants of fear and vengeance. It is the perfect prostitution of the judicial office which has made it under veils only too threadbare and transparent, the degraded recipient of the vilest and clumsiest forgeries, got up willfully and deliberately by the immediate advisers of the crown for the purpose of destroying the peace, the freedom, ay, and even if not by capital sentences, the life of men amongst the most virtuous, upright, intelligent, distinguished, and refined of the whole community. It is the savage and cowardly system of moral as well as, in a lower degree, of physical torture, through which the sentences obtained from the debased courts of justice are carried into effect. The effect of all this is a total inversion of all the moral and social ideas. Law, instead of being respected, is odious. Force and not affection is the foundation of government. There is no association but a violent antagonism between the idea of freedom and that of order. The governing power, which teaches of itself that it is the image of God upon earth, is clothed, in the view of the overwhelming majority of the thinking public, with all the vices for its attributes. I have heard the strong and too true expression used, this is the negation of God erected into a system of government. This last phrase passed into history and into literature. Mr. Gladstone gave it in the original Italian, in which he had heard it, and its fame soon went abroad. Now for the first time, Mr. Gladstone had proved himself to be a leader of truly liberal ideas. 
now there was clearly revealed in his nature that passion of philanthropy which he himself had ascribed to O'Connell and which inspired him to the end. He was still far from being a professed liberal in politics. He would still have put away from him the offer of a place in a liberal administration, but his ideas were expanding beyond the narrow and hide-bound limits of the old-fashioned Toryism. Let it be remembered that there never was in Mr. Gladstone any natural inclination toward Republican sentiments. His whole feelings and reasonings went with the monarchical form of government, and he wrote, no doubt with perfect sincerity, when he said in his letter to Lord Aberdeen, that he complained of the practices of the Neapolitan government because, among other things, they were rapidly doing the work of republicanism in Naples, a political creed which has little natural or habitual root in the character of the people. He stood forth simply as a leader in the cause of humanity. That and that only was the flag he unfurled. The letter, as might be expected, created a profound sensation throughout Europe, and indeed throughout the whole civilized world. A question was put to Lord Palmerston in the House of Commons on the subject, and Lord Palmerston expressed his belief, derived from various other sources of information, that the statements contained in Mr. Gladstone's letters gave only too accurate a description of the conditions of things existing in Naples. Lord Palmerston added, however, that the British government had not considered it a part of its duty to make any formal representations to the Neapolitan government on a subject that belonged entirely to the internal affairs of the kingdom. But he announced that he had thought it right to send copies of Mr. Gladstone's letters, now embodied in a pamphlet, to all the English ministers at the various courts of Europe, directing them to give to each government a copy of the pamphlet, in the hope that by affording them an opportunity of reading it, they might be led to use their influence in promoting Mr. Gladstone's object. There were, of course, numbers of replies, official and non-official, to Mr. Gladstone's charges. Some of the French papers made it a mere question of religion, and tried to convey the idea that it was only the case of a Protestant statesman denouncing a Catholic state. It is as well to point out that in one of his letters to Lord Aberdeen, Mr. Gladstone distinctly exempts the clergy of the Roman Catholic Church in Naples as a body from any implication in the conduct of the Neapolitan government. The whole mass of the replies to Mr. Gladstone's letters had little or nothing to do with the reality of the question at issue. No doubt, Mr. Gladstone was shown to have made many mistakes as to dates and details and persons. The most expert firm of lawyers could not possibly have drawn up so long and comprehensive an indictment without making a mistake here or a mistake there. All that Mr. Gladstone had seen with his own eyes was beyond dispute, and in fact never was disputed. But although he had made the most searching efforts to get at the literal truth of every statement submitted to him, it was not possible that he could always be proof 
against unconscious exaggeration, mistake, or lapses of memory on the part of the narrator. Yet the substance and the essence of his charges remain absolutely immovable. Cruelties beyond number were shown to have been inflicted by the Neapolitan government in absolute disregard and defiance of the Constitution and the laws of the country. Mr. Gladstone frankly admitted the mistakes which he had made, but he showed with clearness that the great bulk of his accusations were established and that he had in some cases understated rather than overstated the gravity of the charge. He published a letter in which he once more vindicated his accusations. The arrow has shot deep into the mark, he said, and cannot be dislodged. But I have sought, in once more entering the field, not only to sum up the state of the facts in the manner nearest to exactitude, but likewise to close the case as I began it, presenting it from first to last in the light of a matter which is not primarily or mainly political, which is better kept apart from parliamentary discussion, which has no connection whatever with any peculiar idea or separate object or interest of England, but which appertains to the sphere of humanity at large and well deserves the consideration of every man who feels a concern for the well-being of his race in its bearings on that well-being, on the elementary demands of individual domestic happiness, on the permanent maintenance of public order, on the stability of thrones, on the solution of that great problem which day and night in its innumerable forms must haunt the reflections of every statesman both here and elsewhere, how to harmonize the old with the new conditions of society and to mitigate the increasing stress of time and change upon what remains of this ancient and venerable fabric of the traditional civilization of Europe. Mr. Gladstone expressed a just pride in the knowledge that on the challenge of one private individual, the government of Naples had been compelled to plead before the tribunal of public opinion and to admit its jurisdiction. He even went so far as to pay a compliment to the Neapolitan government for having resolved on the manly course of an official reply, and declared himself not without a hope that the result of the whole discussion might be a complete reform of the departments of the Kingdom of Naples. Finally, Mr. Gladstone said, I express the hope that it may not become a hard necessity to keep this controversy alive until it reaches its one possible issue, which no power of man can permanently intercept. I express the hope that while there is time, while there is quiet, while dignity may yet be saved in showing mercy, and in the blessed work of restoring justice to her seat, the government of Naples may set its hand in earnest to the work of real and searching, however quiet and unostentatious, reform. That it may not become unavoidable to reiterate these appeals from the hand of power to the one common heart of mankind, to produce those painful documents, those harrowing descriptions, which might be supplied in rank abundance of which I have scarcely given the faintest idea or sketch 
and which, if they were laid from time to time before the world, would bear down like a deluge every effort at apology or palliation, and would cause all that has recently been known to be forgotten and eclipsed in deeper horrors yet, lest this strength of offended and indignant humanity should rise up as a giant refreshed with wine, and while sweeping away these abominations from the eye of heaven, should sweep away along with them things pure and honest, ancient, venerable, salutary to mankind, crowned with the glories of the past, and still capable of bearing future fruit. There can be no doubt that the publication of the letters and the vast spreading controversy which sprang from it did much good, even to the political systems of the kingdom of Naples itself. No civilized government can be thus compelled to plead its cause before the bar of universal public opinion without finding itself constrained to review its own actions and to revise some of its own practices. The prison system and the political trials of the Kingdom of Naples began to improve a little from that day. But the Kingdom of Naples was not allowed much time for improvement. Within less than ten years, a revolution had swept it away, nor does there appear at the present moment the remotest prospect of a return of the Spanish Bourbon to rule in any part of Italy. Mr. Gladstone taught a lesson which it is necessary to teach to most governments. I know indeed of no government except that of the United States alone, which is not under strong temptation every now and then to deal harshly with its political enemies, and even to strain the laws against them. I have heard Mr. Gladstone's own words quoted again and again in the House of Commons as a lesson which ought to be an example to English governments in their dealings with political prisoners. I can only say, so much the better. The moral of Mr. Gladstone's letters was never meant to apply to the government of Naples alone. It applies to every state where in times of disturbance the first thought is how to punish the enemy, and all thought of finding out the grievance, if grievance there be, is waved away into the vague future. I may remark that many even of Mr. Gladstone's admirers, then and since, were of opinion that there was something in the course he took which was incompatible with the attitude assumed by him in replying to Lord Palmerston on the Don Pacifico question. The course of reasoning is somewhat curious. Mr. Gladstone had denounced in the House of Commons the vain conception that we, forsooth, have a mission to be the censors of vice and folly, of abuse and imperfection among the other countries of the world. It is pointed out as something strange that a public man who uttered such opinions should have almost straightway made himself the censor of vice and folly, of abuse and imperfection in the foreign kingdom of Naples. Five minutes of reflection ought to be enough to show to anyone that there is no inconsistency whatever between the one position and the other. Mr. Gladstone objected to the English government, the English state, 
intervening in the affairs of Greece to set right certain defects of the Greek system, and with a strong hand seizing and confiscating Greek vessels to satisfy a preposterous claim for all but imaginary damages. What on earth has this contention to do with the right of a private individual to expose a terrible grievance seen with his own eyes in the prison system of a foreign country? We might as well say that Howard, the philanthropist, because he visited foreign prisons and exposed the horrors of them, would have been inconsistent if he had objected to the English government sending an invading army into each of these foreign countries in order to compel them to set their prison houses in order. One might as well say, to come down to a smaller illustration, that the member of Parliament who objected to our intervention in the domestic affairs of France or Italy is guilty of inconsistency if afterwards he writes a letter to the London newspapers to complain of the loss of his luggage on the French or Italian frontier. Mr. Gladstone acted with perfect consistency in these instances, and indeed, the best possible way of rendering intervention in the domestic affairs of foreign states unnecessary is such an appeal to the public conscience of the civilized world as that which Mr. Gladstone made when he brought the Neapolitan government by his own voice and his own action before the Tribunal of European Opinion. He was then and since a strong friend and champion of Italian unity, and therefore many accusations were made against him on that ground by those who upheld the Austrian possessions of Lombardy and the rule of the King of Naples and the maintenance of the ducal systems of Tuscany and Modena and other places. The whole controversy is long since dead and buried, and I, for one, have not the slightest wish to revive it. But one of the charges made against Mr. Gladstone was that he personally associated himself with Italian conspiracy and that he was the intimate friend of Mazzini, the only comment I have to make on this latter charge is that I myself heard Mr. Gladstone in the House of Commons many years ago say with emphasis, Mr. Speaker, I never saw Signor Mazzini. I do not infer from these words that Mr. Gladstone meant in any way to disparage Mazzini or to associate himself with the charges that were made from time to time against the Italian leader. I merely note the fact that Mr. Gladstone never saw Signor Mazzini. End of chapter 11